The scientific revolution starts now. Nate, you have this idea about the great simplification, which is, as far as I can tell, a vision of the future that is built on the fact that all of our prosperity over the course of the last hundred years or so is built on our ability to mine ample amounts of burnable substances out of the ground that are super, super energy dense. And one of your most powerful examples is you're like, I don't remember if it's 5 billion or 500 billion, but you basically say that fossil fuels have allowed us to magnify the human population to this extreme degree, which it seems like there's way more people doing work than there really is. And as those supplies start to dwindle or they become more expensive, we're facing a transformation that we've never had in the history of mankind, where we have a global civilization. The global civilization depends on one good that underpins absolutely everything, and we don't have any plans for being able to transform those supply chains and manufacturing chains in an effective way within a generation or so. Well, that's pretty much it. We can spend the rest of the three hours talking about dogs and poetry. <laughs> you just uh, summarized my worldview in, in a minute. Um, was, well, so what Shyla's question was is, how did you get to this place? What did you, because I know that you didn't start out as a systems ecologist. You started out as a hedge fund guy. Well, um, I don't know how far back you want to go. Um, when I but, was born, a little bit before then, so somewhere somewhere where you were forming concrete sentences. After then. Yeah, well, after then, after then, sorry. Did you ever, um, did you ever see the movie Citizen Kane? Mm-hmm. So Citizens Kane was this big successful guy and just subconsciously he kept saying Rosebud. That was his, it, Rosebud ended up being a sled, which reminded him of his childhood. And I wouldn't normally bring this up, but you two live in Ashland, Oregon, and that's where I grew up. Uh, and my formative time where my limbic system and my values and my wonder and curiosity about the world was in after school in the foothills of the Siskiyou Mountains, where you live every day with my dog, looking at the salamanders in the creek and the mistletoe clumps and the blackberry bushes and all the different things that I could find in the foothills by myself with my dog. And, you know, I don't know that other humans all had such a privilege to grow up uh, in nature where it was safe and adventurous and um, they didn't really teach ecology back then. So I didn't know the words and the, the processes and the systems, but I felt deeply connected as, as a part of the earth, as a creature. And so I didn't know the science then, but that coupled with watching mutual of Omaha wild kingdom and my parents taking me to zoos because my dad was a doctor and he had to travel around a lot. So the connection to Earth's species, Earth's ecosystems, and the fact that we're all part of a system was part of my early uh, formative upbringing. Were you, were you thinking about 
humans as creatures too at that time? Did you see us no. as embedded in an ecosystem at all? No, no, that came a lot later. Um, you know, the world was a smaller place in the, in the seventies. Um, I didn't, it was a lot later that I started to recognize that Shiloh. I, in the eighties, uh, I graduated college and of course, um, growing up in this culture, I wanted to make more money and get a, a better car and a better apartment uh, to impress a better girlfriend and move up the um, the status ladder as a lot of 20-something males in, in our world do. How could I do that? I should go into finance. Um, and so I, I did uh, um, undergrad in, in international business and Chinese. And I worked uh, for a real estate company for a couple of years. And then the wanderlust took over and I, I went to China for a year, um, traveled around and saw how other people not in the United States live. Um, I had hardly any money. I lived in a six foot by 10 foot room with concrete, uh, slept on the floor, um, taught English, scrapped money to go travel some more. Um, Came back and got my master's in finance at one of the best business schools in the world, the University of Chicago. Went to Wall Street, managed money for billionaires, really. Um, they wouldn't allow me to call someone that had less than $100 million. I was a high net worth uh, broker, and I was not interested in stocks. I was interested in the global macro situation on how things fit together with currencies and interest rates and commodities and and all that and so eventually over time um one of my clients was trading very large size oil futures uh speculating gambling basically um and i started to read about oil um as a good uh fiduciary for him to give him advice and and execute his trades and i I, I became so obsessed with it that after around three months, I, I learned three core things. One, um, as uh, Anastasia said, uh, oil uh, is the oxygen, the hemoglobin of our modern economy is so unbelievably powerful in what it um, provides for us. That was like amazing to me that one barrel of oil uh, does four and a half years worth of my labor. And we use 100 billion a year. So it's effectively 400, 500 billion human worker equivalents of uh, energy potential are added to the global economy every year. They never taught me that at the University of Chicago. They never even mentioned the word energy. So, wow, our modern uh, consumption expectations institutions are based on drawing down this, this fossil carbon millions of times faster than it was trickle charged by by daily photosynthesis so that was number one number two this stuff is going to peak and decline in my lifetime we won't always have this amount and not only that a separate but related uh, insight is it won't always be going up every year in my lifetime it will be there will be a time and we could get to that later i think the time is starting now this year uh where it will start to go down every year um so what will we do um granted one of the richest countries in the history of the world at one of the richest times 
for our species in the history of the world. So it's not an absolute uh, red line of energy and materials, but it's a delta versus what we've been used to and what we're planning on. That's going to happen in my lifetime. And then the third thing, getting back to my uh, value system of, of nature, is all of the pollution, not only the CO2, but the plastic uh, um, spinoffs, the endocrine disruption, the, um, the impact on the biosphere and the oceans and everything else, none of that is included in the price of the things that we um, uh, uh, attach to the goods and services that are created and refined and delivered and manufactured and repaired and run and, and disposed of with oil, coal, and, and natural gas. So um, it was around the year 2000, 2001, that all of this hit me. Like uh, it, it was like a, a, a scientific being born again sort of thing. And I was like, what? Why, what am I doing on Wall Street managing money for rich people when this is happening on my watch. So I um, I quit and took my golden retriever to British Columbia. And for six months, I read and hiked and read and hiked 40 hours a week. Um, and I became so obsessed with this that I ended up going back to get a PhD. I might as well get a degree if I'm gonna spend this time researching it. Um, and I've continued that in the last 20 years, um, building a network of scientists on the natural science, but also the, the systems ecology and also the human science. I'm friends with a lot of neuroscientists because I could argue that although climate change and resource depletion uh, and these sorts of things are, are proximate problems, our ultimate problem is a human behavioral mismatch with our modern world and our ancestral environment. Um, the real deep responses to what we face are not technological, they're social uh, and, and very human. Um, so I don't, I don't know that I've answered your question, but maybe that's a first statement uh, for you. Well, I think what you wrapped to is one of the most interesting questions in the entire world, as far as I can tell, which is how to realign our incentive structures for purchasing and for the way that we materially remodel our civilization and our society with what we really want as human beings. And so maybe you can unpack that a little bit about what you've learned. I mean, we could talk about the disparity in those two, but it's probably fairly obvious to most people that all of this material, well, like people are increasingly comfortable materially. Science and technology have done miracles on that front but yet people don't necessarily seem to be doing better internally let's say psychologically or spiritually however you want to address it and so how do we realign those those two enterprises that material growth with who we want to be as people how do we stay actually connected to the things that we love the way that we love to spend our time how do we not find ourselves just serving the finance industry for instance in you know some bullshit jobs that just take our time and leave us tired at the end of the day like wh how, what's the road to that future do you have any any you know revelations about that i don't think i would call them revelations i have explanations for it and maybe some suggested pathways 
The explanation is more stuff does not make us happier or healthier. Um, neuroscientist Robert Sapolsky was on my show talking about the anticipation of reward or the unexpected reward matches with our ancestral uh, drive for dopamine salience. And uh, back uh, 200,000 years when we were on uh, the plains of uh, the savannas in, in Tanzania, uh, movement in the bushes or uh, uh, something down by the water would catch our attention. And that salience would correlate with food um, or escaping from danger. But now we have so many things in our society like um, cell phones or call and get a pizza delivered to you. And we're we're getting the reward without doing the work. So technology and tech. And by the way, when I say technology, it's important to note that all these machines we have in our lives, there's invisible energy currents running behind them. So there, there is no technology without energy is just a sculpture. Um, it, it's just a piece of inert machinery. We have to have energy flows to power all this stuff. So much of our, we go through our lives um, unconsciously trying to replicate the same daily emotional states of our ancestors. And our ancestors, uh, you know, 300,000 years, that's, uh, that's 20,000 to 15 to 20,000 generations of humans. The vast majority of them lived in egalitarian uh, small communities where the things of value were trust, social capital, respect, hunting ability, storytelling ability, um, and leadership and intelligence and things like that. It wasn't amassing uh, more stuff than the next person um, because we traveled around a lot. There was no stuff. And I, I could argue that the agricultural revolution is what changed that because we started to shift to spending more time in one place and we worked harder but we ended up having a lot more storable surplus that we couldn't eat um and so we'd store it and we could trade with other people and that started us down this path of hierarchy and representations of reality and competition uh between nations uh, etc so now today, um, you know, part of this is that we are unhealthy and have trauma and addiction because we've lived in basically a um, an unstable and uh, kind of sick society. I, I have to say, I've not used that word before, but I think our society is is sick in many ways, even at the time when we have more energy abundance as a nation, as a world than before. So part of it is ourselves, but a large part of it is the economic system that we reside in. Mm. Um, so I think you ask, what are the paths forward? Um, there's a certain amount, the size of the pie, the size of the economic pie. Um, there's what does that, how big is the pie? And my argument, which we can discuss, is the pie is about to start shrinking. The total amount of goods and services to our culture and to the 
global human culture. The second is the distribution of the pie, who gets what in the pie. And of course, we know that the wealth and income inequality are are quite extreme, uh, both between countries and within countries. And then what is the, um, how healthy is the pie? Uh, like what are the activities we're doing and the food we're eating and things like that? And it's all kind of a mess. Um, so what are the paths forward? Um, I think it's recognizing first as individuals that after basic needs are met and granted for a lot of humans, both in our country, the United States and around the world, basic needs aren't fully met. Um, but for those listeners of your program whose basic needs are met, after that, most of the best things in life are free. If, if I ask your viewers, what are the five best memories that you've ever had in your life? Most people will not list things that required a lot of money and energy. It'll be playing a game of cards with their family or a sleepover with all their friends or a camping trip uh, back by Mount Ashland or, you know, those are, or, or, you know, a five hour hike with my dog or whatever. Um, we've just, um, the, the siren song of the supernormal stimuli of, of technology shouts louder to our ancestral brains than the real things that matter. And I think that we should incentivize different things in the future and, and uh, pecuniary flexing and consumption should be frowned upon culturally, but it really starts as individuals. You, you, you have to draw a line and um, kind of resist uh, um, the consensus trance of what our culture is telling us. This is what causes success. This is what causes happiness. And, you know, on media and marketing and the commercials during football games and everything, we're constantly being told, uh, you suck. If you buy this product, you're going to be happier and better. And it's it's relentless. Um, so for the last 22 years, I've not had a television. And I think that's helped my, um, my outlook. Um, and I try to surround myself by other people that share my values. And that helps. Because if you surround yourself with people that have different values, you're in a constant state of, of dissonance. Uh, from what you really care about and what your friends are pulling you towards. Um, see, this this is why I'm I'm keen to do a, a long-form conversation with the two of you because each one of these questions itself could take three hours, really. Uh, but the bottom line to your question, uh, Shiloh, is we don't need all this energy and stuff to be happy. Uh, in fact... Our, our happiness is largely indicated by our social structures. And there are countries where we use uh, 10 times more energy than that are just as happy and healthy as us. There's a, there's a declining marginal return to more energy per capita. And it's around 100 gigajoules per capita is where it levels off. So the United States uses around triple the energy as the average Italian. But on uh, subjective well-being, human development indexes were, were about the same. Uh, so that extra energy is just turning billions of barrels of ancient sunlight into microliters of dopamine and not making us happier or healthier or helping the planet.
You know, it's interesting. As you were saying about this evolutionary dopamine argument, I was thinking kind of for the first time that there's another evolutionary drive that really gets us going, which is leaving the place where we are. And I think that there's a huge component of that that's driven us into the strange and discordant society in which we live right now. Because if you think about it, the the version of the world that you present is a version of the world where people live near each other. And so you can have the slumber party with your friends because everybody lives a few blocks away. Nobody has to take a six-hour road trip to get there or fly. It's not out of the ordinary. You're just right there. But the reality is, is that you grow up somewhere and you move. And so you end up far away. And any time that you want to gather with your loved ones, it's a, it's a fucking ordeal. The way that people travel for Thanksgiving or they travel for Christmas or any, any number of, of highlight moments. And, and so, it's increasingly expensive, right? When you live on the other side of the country. It's in, especially as oil becomes more expensive? or Well, yeah, I mean, for me, it's like, I agree that all of the things that make us happy don't cost money. And yet you still, the rent is always due kind of thing. And, and so I don't think that you're alone in that you come out of, you know, your parents' protection or out of college, whatever it is. And you look around and maybe you have a terrible, like I had some really bad jobs right out of college. And, and I was just like, I can't, this, this is stupid. I need to do something that actually makes money, right? This is probably a pretty common experience. And so it's almost like the first thing that people need to take care of is like, how do I establish that really close, intimate relationship? Well, that definitely requires me being able to at least pay my bills and probably my family's bills too. And then it's like, by the time you've spent 20 years making that happen, good luck trying to get back to focusing on the other things. It's almost like it's this barrier in between which is increasingly more difficult the more expensive the world has become, the more fragmented and distant our family becomes from us and our friends. That's, that's true. That's true. The direction that I was going to take it into, though, is this evolutionary desire to leave. Because humans, the consensus story right now is that they emerged in Africa and then they radiated outwards across the globe. And we've always been radiating. We've always been seeking the frontier. There's always been a group of people that get left behind and a different group of people that go. And there is an evolutionary push towards the, the unknown and the unexperienced that I think draws us as much as this dopaminergic urge of seeing something in the bushes. I, I have two, two responses to that. Go ahead, Shiloh. I was going to say, are you talking about leaving the planet? I mean, eventually, yeah. I, I have two responses to that. First is, is you're right. There is some unsettled um, wanderlust that is deep in our genome, like the fact that so many people are compelled to climb Mount Everest despite the dangers. <laughs> yeah. It's just a mountain. And, and despite the line. Like that, you've seen the photographs of the yeah. line up the crest of Everest, right? And the dead people. I, I, I climbed Mount Kilimanjaro and I almost died. Um, and I was too big. I was two hundred sixty pounds, and so I was too big for them to bring me down on a stretcher. So I, I walked twenty one hours straight to get down, and I literally almost died. So never mountain climb again for me. But the the same dynamic is um is with trying to colonize Mars and what's going on with Bezos and Musk. It's like the humans have to do more, and it's this uh, naive progress uh, narrative 
um, where we have to understand the stars before we understand what's beneath the oceans on our own planet. So I, I think that's a little bit of unexpected reward coupled with power uh, and status uh, and, and discovery. But, but the other, uh, where I thought you were going to go when you talked about traveling and, and, and such is cheap energy has enabled us optionality, uh, in ways that our ancestors never dreamed of. You could always find another job or another boyfriend or another girlfriend or another city. And there's very little cost relative to historically um where it's like if you left home in the 1700s to go somewhere you were were never seeing those people again yeah exactly um so i think a lot of our problems today and this is going to sound um strange given my opening statement is because we're too rich um we have too many options uh there was a book i forgot the author um it was called The Paradox of Choice. And in it, he talked about how many, like there's 150,000 SKUs at the average supermarket, mm-hmm. 150,000 um, individually distinct products. And you walk into the shampoo aisle and there's like a hundred different sorts of shampoos or drinks or beverages or whatever. And so there's more choice and the more choice actually gives humans more utility because you can pick the exact flavor that you want but simultaneously it creates regret in your mind that maybe i didn't make the whole the the right choice and so net net we're more miserable from all this choice back when there used to be the general store a hundred years ago that had 50 items you know salt and sugar and uh, you know whatever you needed but it wasn't this cornucopia of options that almost it's like we're in some ways living in a 24-7 Las Vegas all-you-can-eat smorgasbord mm-hmm. uh, without having to do the real work. I mean, pornography is the sex without the relationship and, and the tenderness and the love. And our whole culture is that way in some ways. And this has all been enabled by effectively pulling ancient sunlight out of the ground only at the cost of extraction not the cost that it took mother nature to create it nor the cost of the pollution it creates so it's um you know i can critique what's going on that doesn't really help us um you know know what to do but i think we have to understand uh our situation in order to have um more humans converge on uh pathways forward mm. seems like a lot of that choice was fueled not by a genuine need for diversity of products, but because the public relations and marketing industry was born because it, it realized that it could sell inter, like you could basically have intra brand competition and sell more products that way. If you sell three different flavors of toothpaste, you can end up selling more toothpaste overall, basically because for whatever reason, people now feel like they're making choices, but they're really still buying the same toothpaste at the end of the day. And so that's what I feel like is the really interesting snag here is that these decisions to these economic, uh, let's say, a lot of the material progress hasn't necessarily been motivated by genuine human needs. 
right? It's not, there's not like, there's like the humanity has been taken out of it by this algorithmic approach to selling and growing and getting bigger. And I, I just, I'm at a loss for how that gets brought back under control other than people making choices not to participate in it as much as possible. But then again, got to go see your family at Christmas or whatever. Maybe That's one path. Go ahead, Nastya. I was just going to say that maybe understanding the arc by which it came about is a useful way of looking at solutions. Because I think you're right that we've never faced anything quite like this before. But surely there's something in the evolutionary story of how this all came to be where we can point to and say, okay, that trigger is what led to all of this. And if we can fix that trigger, then perhaps from this point outwards, the, the path that it will follow will be different. I have an answer to that. <laughs> Excellent. Um, did you guys read my, my academic paper, Beyond the Superorganism? Mm-mm. Um, as professors, I should have sent you that first instead of um, my videos. Um, so that that's my most recent academic paper and kind of my interconnecting uh, worldview that humans historically for a long time were hunter-gatherers until we found agriculture. Then that agricultural surplus allowed us to complexify and expand. We expanded around the world. Um, and then we were developing technology and we found um, the America, the United States. Uh, and in the mid 19th century, we started to farm vertically under the ground in, in addition to horizontally above the ground and pull out all this concentrated energy uh, and materials. And it became so powerful, um, this stuff that replaced what humans and draft animals did with thousands of times more potent uh, and cheaper outcomes that all of our stories about how human wealth and productivity and um, old economic theories that were based on land and land productivity went out the window. And so our economic uh, professors, our economic stories over time, parsed that all into labor and capital and energy and materials were just another input. They were not special, despite being enormously special. And over time, um, you know, in, in, before World War II, we started to measure our progress by something called GDP, which is gross domestic product, um, or GWP, which is gross world product of all the nations. And that's just a measure of the goods and services that are produced in a, in a certain period, um, uh, a quarter or a year. Um, and it's really since GDP is... 99% correlated with energy, it really is a measure of how much we burn. So the there wasn't a bunch of people in the United States or in the world saying, let's organize our world around consumption and let's make it so that everyone has to have... It, it wasn't like that. It was a, a series of emergent decisions that were built on top of each other. And so now 
the global economic system has evolved into individual humans in their families, in their small businesses, in their corporations, in their nations. And as a global uh, intertwined economy, we maximize our own um, time and decisions towards profits or salaries, wages. Um, and those profits are highly linked to using energy. And the energy is highly linked to 82% linked to fossil energy, which is depleting rapidly on human time scales. So there we have kind of, uh, and, and then this is another topic is whenever we run into an economic problem, we raise the debt ceiling and we borrow more money. And so what's happening is we're growing our debt as a, as a country and as a world much, much faster than we're growing our GDP, which is the income stream needed to pay back the debt. And so what we've done is, is the market system and the market is kind of a, 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 a primitive AI of sorts where it's an aggregate intelligence. And we have really, as a culture, as a species, outsourced our wisdom and restraint to the financial market. And so now our entire system is we have to grow because if we don't grow, things would be bad. And we're not growing. Oh, my gosh, we need to help uh, the system grow. We're going to cut interest rates or we're going to give people stimulus checks or we're going to change the rules so that no one can fail and the government's going to bail them out. Um, and, and so it's gotten to the point where there is no group of humans saying this would be the most logical and rational and healthy thing for humans. Let's not have ultra processed food because that's making people sick and obese. Of course, it's also by far the cheapest way to make food and store it and, and transport it. Um, let's not have CO2 pollution because that's... Um, uh, eventually going to boil the oceans, I mean, not literally, but um, metaphorically, and cause catastrophic climate change. Let's not cut down the forest and, and uh, remove habitat for other species. All these things that we should do, that a sapient, wise species should do, um, would, in the very immediate term, hurt the economy and send it into a recession or a depression. So it's like uh, going down Mount Ashland and uh, Scooby-Doo uh, cartoon where the snowball gets bigger and skis and legs and dog legs are sticking out of it. That is our economic system. It is out of control. And there is no billionaire or politician that can stop it. In fact, even if they understood what we're talking about right now, and many of them do, um, to do the right things to make it a more sane economic system uh, would require things that would cause them to get kicked out of office and not reelected. Mm. So I call this all a super organism that human society has become a, not the individual humans, but the aggregate humans acting together are functioning akin to a biological organism that is optimized for growth, doesn't care about anything else. And that growth requires us to access more energy. 
and we're mindless, just sloughing forward, grabbing at more energy. And you could call this, um, some of my friends refer to the personality of this superorganism as Moloch uh, or something that is just kind of have a, a malevolent um, impact and just going forward. And, and so if you want to say, let's put our finger on where we went wrong or what is the lever, it's that we've, we've handed off our control of this to a mindless, energy-hungry dynamic that no one can stop um, until it stops itself uh, by the momentum of past decisions. And that is what I refer to as a great simplification. And we can talk about that um, because anything that would stop it would bring in all these uh, debts and, and past bills that, have, that we've been kicking the can for the last 30, 40, 50 years. I'll, I'll pause there for questions. <laughs> Pardon the interruption, dear listeners, but we must ask you for a favor. If you like what the Demystify Sci podcast does, consider coming over to our Patreon. It is at patreon.com slash demystifysci, and there you can contribute a couple dollars a month to help us keep the ship running and allow us to continue our investigations into the most interesting ideas that are out there about nature, humans, history, the future, technology, economics, all of the things that we do on the podcast. In return for your donation, you get both of our episodes for the week early, you get to join our fantastic patron chat that meets weekly on Sunday mornings to talk about everything that is interesting in the world and the direction that the podcast should take. And you get to have the satisfaction of contributing to something that you think is important in the world. If you can't contribute right now, that is totally fine. We understand. I have been in that boat for many, many years. But what you can do without spending a single penny is come to our Discord, come to our Facebook, come to our Twitter, come to our Instagram, like, comment, and subscribe, because by helping us with the algorithm, you help us grow in a really super passive way. And if you've already joined the Patreon, just do all that other stuff too. For now, back to the conversation. I mean, I've been thinking about it similarly for quite a while in terms of how we seem to be governed by autonomous, I think of it as an algorithm, right? You know, I have mm -hmm. to put my money in a bank, right? Because it's going to lose, otherwise I'm going to lose my money due to inflation. So right away, I'm working, I'm giving it over to some system that God knows what they do with it. I mean, I, I can understand at this point what they do with it. They're lending it out to people. It's not like it's actually sitting in the bank. But even if I want to do even better, then I need to get my money inside of some ETFs or something, right? So that it's, actually growing a little bit uh and if everybody's doing that then we're all essentially participating it's not like i have if i if i put my retirement fund uh in some of these index funds something like that well it's basically just selecting for those businesses that are growing the most and so it's kind of happening happening without our knowing and so it's interesting that you think about it as a super organism as opposed to like some sort of strange virus that's taken over the super that's sort of scrambled the brains of the superorganism because i feel like human beings probably could be viewed as a superorganism before this happened to some extent and then right around the birth of the finance industry well modern finance industry it seems like things really took a wild turn and and became completely obsessed with this gdp concept which we didn't even mention seems to doesn't even necessarily price actual products, but also just like you said, services, which sometimes can be unearned income, right? These are 
interests and rents and things like this that have nothing to do with actually making people's lives more materially rich. They actually impoverish them to some extent. And that's accounted for in this concept of, you know, growth. So I feel like it's a possession uh, of the superorganism more than, uh, than, than the actual will of the superorganism itself. But I, maybe you can't, maybe it's impossible to tear the two apart. If it is a possession of the superorganism, it's a possession of the superorganism that just periodically happens, right? Because everybody through history seems to have had moments of weird obsessions about things that they think have a lot of value but don't. Like the Dutch tulip crisis, I think, comes to mind. You look through the ancient worlds and the the apocryphal story is, I mean, it's not too ancient, but the apocryphal story is that the Native Americans sold the island of Manhattan for some beads which it's like you place great value on items that don't actually have any in, intrinsic value. And so you, and you see this in, um, I think like cowrie shells were, were a huge trading commodity at some point where the cultures that lived close to the ocean would accumulate them and then they would distribute them to other cultures that used them in their finery and in their, uh, in their craft. And so they needed them and they acquired massive value despite the fact that it's not really, it, it doesn't really make sense when you stand on some objective marker and you're like, they're just shells, like you could use rocks if you really wanted to. There's something inherent about the way that we organize societies where we need to be able to have this game where we're like, you have less of the thing that is the token than I do, and because you have less of the token, then I have power over you. And that seems part you're, of the, the, the history of humans. You're, you're right. <clears throat> and by the way, these little pieces of linen that we have in our pocket, uh, $10 bills, $20 bills, and the digits in the bank, there's actually only around $1,500 per American of actual dollar bills. Um, so um, you're right that these, I mean, what intrinsic value does a dollar have? It has value because we trust that we can give it to someone else and they'll give us what what we want for it but in in a large sense how different is this pieces of paper in my pocket than cowrie shells but you mentioned an important word which is power um so there is an ecological uh principle some people refer to it as the fourth law of thermodynamics um and uh you guys are writing notes to each other. It makes me very curious about what. No, actually, uh, what I'm doing is I'm asking. We're. Uh, I really love nicotine, but uh, I don't smoke anymore. And so Shiloh makes these bargain basement nicotine mints where we buy Altoids Smalls in bulk and nicotine in bulk, and put and you smush them together. No, so he like he he puts this tray down and he like drops a drop of nicotine on each Altoid mint, and oh. so I occasionally steal them from him. But he always keeps them close to his vest, and so I always doing a podcast have to be like, "Yo, that's how rude of us." <laughs> give, give no, 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 not not at all. It's very it's very nice, heartwarming. Um, I have never smoked a cigarette in my life. I have smoked pot once or twice, um, but I've never smoked nicotine ever, just yes. for what it's worth. Have you um, tried like a nicotine gum or something? No. Interesting. No, nothing about nicotine. Yeah, like by itself, it's basically just like coffee or something. Really? So it, yeah, it's just a stimulant. It just, uh, it oh. honestly feels very much similar to coffee. Okay. But. Uh, 
I thought nicotine gum was for people trying to kick the habit of smoking. Actually, it has some cognitive benefits too. There's some interesting research on this in terms so of just... some people just buy nicotine gum just to like. Oh <laughs> yeah, we don't we don't smoke, we, but oh, okay. yeah, it's it's uh we like what, coffee. What a we, bad we like assumption nicotine. of me. I, just when you said nicotine gum, I assumed you were recovering no. from not wanting to smoke cigarettes. No, it's oh. just yeah, it, it it's a. Uh, I don't know. I'm I'm very much in this is completely off subject or whatever, but I'm very much interested in fine-tuning the brain's machinery. So neurotropics and you know, vitamin supplementation, exercise, cold therapy, like anything I can do to make my brain work better, because I feel like I'm inherently stupid and lazy and <laughs> I can use any little benefit I can get, I feel like. So Well, send me a short list of your tips because you both look quite quite healthy. <laughs> Maybe um, we should do a video about that at some point. Yeah. Um the word you used, uh Nastia, was power. Mm -hmm. Um so there is a an ecological principle that some people have likened to the fourth law of thermodynamics, which is called the maximum power principle, MPP. And that looks at nature um, as an energy dissipating uh, structure so that organisms in nature and full ecosystems self-organize to be better able to degrade an energy vector or a gradient. So a big oak tree um, isn't going to have just one leaf. Um, and it's not going to have a billion leaves because the leaves would shade each other out and it would cost too much energy to make the leaves relative to the energy it got back. So it would have some intermediate number of leaves to maximize the um, incoming energy from the sun that the tree was able to absorb. So humans, and I'm going to, okay, so set that aside. The, the other thing about humans is that we are incredibly social creatures. And like you said, Nastia, that um, some people have more or less cowrie shells, and that gives them more social power. So what happened when we stopped hunting and gathering, and that is, by my analysis, the fall from grace for our species in, in, in many long-term sustainable ways, then we started to develop hierarchies and priests and accountants and shaman and warriors and uh, craftspeople and we specialized and that started to create different amounts of social power and different amounts of wealth and then we found fossil fuels and that turbocharged the whole thing it sped it up it in in a um a power law a pareto sort of distribution it funneled a lot more of the wealth to the rockefellers and 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 similar and then, as Shiloh pointed out, we had um, the, the creation of, of currencies and digital currencies and fractional reserve banking system, and that goosed the power dynamics even more. And so people would um, want the optionality. I just had Jeremy Grantham on my podcast this week, and he's a billionaire, and I asked him, um, how can people who are billionaires and have a pro-social outlook and want to do what's best for the environment and society, how can they allocate their money towards doing good as opposed to looking at the optionality of wanting more money? Because if you have more money, 
you then have, like Shiloh was saying, when he had crappy jobs out of college, he realized that he had to have a better job to be able to pay the rent and do things. So all of us, especially billionaires, I've discovered, want more dollars because it's a way to um, expand your claims on future comfort, convenience, security, dopamine, etc. And I have a unique advantage on this because I used to manage money for these sorts of people. And I had clients that were worth $500 million and they're like, I just want another hundred million and I'm going to quit. But then when they got to that level, um, they didn't quit because they're all their buddies had more in the meantime. So what I see now is when people are worried about the US dollar and energy depletion and everything that's going on, and they expect that governments are going and central banks are going to have to print more money, um, that they they want to increase their optionality on the future by growing their billion dollars to a billion and a half or whatever, because they can turn those dollars into real estate, <clears throat> land, companies, other currencies. And so it's this compulsion to grow this amount of uh, digital claims on reality. And we all have it in this culture. I could imagine this amount of technology and this amount of humans living in a very different culture where we don't feel that compulsion. I mean, how many people in America are going to get cancer and go broke in the process? And we have this fear that we are not going to have enough money to take care of ourselves in, in our country, one of the richest countries in the world, because our, our healthcare system is just totally messed up. Over 20% of our GDP is in healthcare. But getting back to the, here's the punchline. Now we have AI and AI is going to accelerate this optionality um, of billionaires on steroids. And I fear that there's going to be 200 or 300 AIs in the world, mostly owned by military and billionaires. And that's the new um, uh, mega uh, methamphetamine um super organism is the drive so we went exponential when we hit fossil fuels then we went exponential again with digital money and fractional reserve banking and now it's really going to go exponential um with ai trying to accelerate all of these things and it's i'm trying to get my head around it because i don't i think there's new things happening every single day on ai but I do see the players in, in the world and, and how much money they're throwing at this. And it's like a, a, um, a winner-take-all mentality that everyone is trying to um, get the best AI and have the, the most dollars at the end of the game. And it's, it's really distorted. And then, of course, there's just us normal people trying to make a living and how are we going to manage this? We don't have access to all that information and technology and AI. We're just trying to pay our health insurance bills and uh, buy a six pack of beer so we can watch a football game and uh, go have Thai food in Lithia Park uh, and the things that we enjoy in our life. Um, so it's I, I I can describe what's happening. I I don't know how to solve it. <laughs> I mean I'm. You know, this gets back to your original question. I've spent 20 years 
trying to connect the dots that comprise the system science of the human predicament. And I'm still learning. And as a podcast host, that's one of the the um, fringe benefits is you learn a little something on every conversation. And I, I feel um, you know grateful for that. But I don't know what to do. I, I think our our future is we're going to have to consume less resources um, because we're going to have to. That's going to be um, forced upon us by the momentum of a of a system that has um, borrowed continuously from the future to consume today, and and the road is kind of full of cans that we've kicked in the past. And so I think in the next decade we're going to hit a moment where our financial claims on reality recouple back to reality. And that's going to mean we have to consume less. We're going to have to connect more to other humans um, being this materially rich. And I'm mostly talking about the United States. Um, I don't know the demographics of your program who watches your show. Um, all over. We all over. Yeah. Mine too. I only 38% of my viewers are in the United States. Mm. I mean, this is a global story, right? Humans and this earth. I mean, it is a global story for better or worse. The United States has got pole position, uh, because of our military, because of the U S dollar is the world's reserve currency. Uh, and we have Hollywood and, um, you know, highest amount of GDP, uh, except China's um, now surpassing us, but they have five times as many people. Um, the United States has a huge role to play in, in what's coming. The United States has that promise too, right? That you could be one of those billionaires someday, right? I I think that's in some sense, a unique part of the American vision is that you can, you can join in that, that feast, right? Everyone's a temporarily embarrassed billionaire. Yeah, there you go. Yeah. I mean, live the American dream or as um, it was either Cheney or Bush said, the American way of life is non-negotiable. I I mean, it's, it's kind of BS, right? Um, I mean, we, first of all, this nation had the uh, lucky fortitude to be founded in a geological province. That is where a lot of ancient shallow oceans resided so this was the most blessed country in the world for oil and gas and petroleum resources the united states we talk about fossil armies and the benefit of coal oil and natural gas supporting the machines that that we use in our lives the united states has used more fossil hydrocarbons in the last 20 years in the last 50 years in the last 200 years since the dawn of time than any other nation. Um, so this is what really underpins our, our wealth and productivity. And the reason we don't notice that, and the reason that I say that our culture and our institutions are energy blind is because every single year, with the exception of recessions or wars, in the last 150 years, we've had more energy than the year before. So all of our fancy plans about the future and what technology is going to take us to a million people living on Mars or whatever, uh, it's all predicated on assuming this more energy every year happens. And um, 
I, I think that's a huge flaw. And we could get into the particulars of the US and global oil situation if you want. Um, but anyways. I think that that would be really interesting. Something that I was just rolling around in my head as you were speaking was that as we approach this point where less and less oil is available and let's say the climate warms enough to start to defrost the Arctic, there's going to be huge reserves that are opened in the Arctic that cannot be explored right now, which I think every country that has access to those areas with their borderlands will aggressively pursue development of. And so it seems like there's this, so there's two things that are at play here. Number one is that if the warming continues on the trend, it seems, because I look, there's the, uh, the forecast is 90 billion barrels of oil in the Arctic uh, with 1.6 trillion cubic feet of natural gas and 44 billion barrels of natural gas liquid, which that's just in the areas that the USGS has surveyed. And that suggests that there actually are more reserves that are untapped because there were a lot of shallow oceans up in the Arctic at some point. So the other side of that is that world populations appear to be slowing down and declining. You can look at South Korea, you look at Italy, and you look at all of these different places. In the developed world. Even China and India are slowing down. I think that the, the only place that's still actively growing is uh, sub-Saharan Africa, like Nigeria has a, one of the biggest population. Everywhere countries. is growing. Everywhere is growing. What's happening is the growth rate is declining. Yes. We're still adding 81 million humans to the Earth population every single year. It used to be 85 million, then it was 84, now it's 81. So population growth rate has been declining since 1965, and that it, over time will re result eventually in a lower population, but not in any time soon. I, the default scenario is we will hit 10 billion people, and in my view, that's likely unless there's a world war or something like that um or some black swan event but i think we will have a lot more poor people uh in the world that are the wider and deeper poverty but sorry to interrupt you were you were connecting population and climate and the arctic and oil i just i think you're you're right about the population continuing to grow for some period of time but i think that it also seems like as countries become more developed education becomes more widespread birth rates start to fall that there is the potential for global populations to fall significantly at the same time that the planet warms and more and more petroleum reserves are able to be accessed whether or not ecologically that's a good idea like we can let cuz let's say that governments even knowing that their people wouldn't want them to, say, prospect for oil in Alaska, they still do so because of whatever geopolitical necessities exist. Like, the people who live in fracking country probably don't want their water to be flammable. And yet, here we are. So it seems like they probably would develop them were they accessible. And so, is there... 
Is there a chance that this just gets delayed by another few generations based off of the reserves that are available and the the number of pe- people on Earth declining? Absolutely not. Um, but I think I think I need to explain about oil first, and then that's going to take a bit, and then yeah, come back it. to your Arctic question. Um, so one thing about energy blindness is it's not just that energy is important uh it's that energy quality is important and oil is incredibly energy dense it's liquid at room temperature it can be transported on ships or in pipelines and it can be refined into lots of different things like diesel fuel and jet fuel and kerosene and uh bunker fuel and gasoline and uh plastic precursors and and it, it is really um, a shame that we're burning it for heat and for transport because on long-term timescales, it's indistinguishable from magic to humans for what it can accomplish. Um, oil uh, comes in different reservoirs and um, has different qualities. And the United States peaked in oil production in 1970. And we declined every year after that until like 2008. Um, That was the conventional oil, uh, the type of stuff that's just under the ground and um, gets released with pressure and and such. We added on top of that the North Slope of Alaska, which is a non-contiguous but part of the United States. We added on top of that the oil under the ocean in the Gulf of Mexico. Um, and it was still declining. Then we used fracking, which is uh, horizontal nipples under uh, the earth on the um, pipeline that actually um, is like using a larger straw. And so it's not like we found more oil or there was more oil. We just got out what was there faster. And shale oil comes from migrates from the source rock where all the other oil originated there's nothing left after shale oil so 70 percent of oil in the united states right now is shale oil and all of the shale provinces have peaked and, and are in decline except for the permian and the permian is the granddaddy of them all um except i just had a podcast yesterday with my friend art berman who's done this amazing work and this will be live by the time your episode goes out, that the United States on the surface just reached all-time high in oil production this month, 13.05 million barrels a day. But that is because we high-graded, we found the best areas first, and we're cannibalizing where we're drilling a, a well next to another company or another field. And underneath the ground, these horizontal things are butting into each other. And so we're we're pulling out things much faster. But what he discovered, um, and we're publishing on this now, is that relative to 2019, the well productivity in the Permian, the biggest and best play in the world, is declined by 50%. The implications are that in the next few years, we we will finally see a decline in all U.S. oil production. Um, 
not a precipitous decline. We'll still have 70, 80% of, of what we have now. Um, so we're not running out. We're just running out of enough to power economic growth of what we've considered in the past. There are other shale plays in the world, but it has to be a particular type of marine shale. It has to be in an area that's not under the city of Paris. Uh, it has to be able to be accessed by governments. Um, so most of the world countries and provinces have already peaked. There are a few areas that are still growing. So you talk about the Arctic. First of all, it would take 20 years to adequately drill and, and produce. Of course, it's uh, produces another one of those um, euphemisms like uh, climate change and global warming. It Global heating is the right term. Produce oil is not the right term. We're extracting oil that was already produced by, by algae and mother nature. But the Arctic has 90 billion barrels. We use three, 30 billion barrels a year right now. So if the Arctic was fully uh, drilled uh, and we got all that, and by the way, the cost of the Arctic would be well over $100 a barrel. Um, so it's not going to be like an easy thing, but it's only adding a few more years uh, to total human capacity. So let me make this very clear. There's two implications of this. We are all alive during the carbon pulse, this one time couple 300 period year period where humans are drawing down this ancient carbon millions and millions of times faster than mother nature put it there. So there's two implications of this. One is that your children and grandchildren, um, people living in 2050 and 2080 and 2100, are going to have probably substantially less energy than we do today. That's one implication. And we should start to plan around that. What are our lives going to look like? The other implication is we have this massively complex, globally interconnected economic system, which relies on quarterly and annual growth. And that growth has been um, spurred by more and more high quality energy added to the system every year. And if all of a sudden that energy starts to decline, then we have this musical chairs financial situation where we have all these financial claims of what people think they own relative to a declining biophysical reality and the geopolitics that underpin that. And the, well, wait a minute, if the pie isn't growing, how do I make sure that my country gets um, the, my share of, of, of what's left? So this is why when oil actually starts to decline globally and not because we stop using it, that's there's something in uh, climate um, circles that it's called peak demand, which is that we're so smart that we're going to create renewable energy technology so that we don't need oil anymore. And yes, it's true that we will use less oil in the future, but that's because we don't demand it. And from a maximum power standpoint, that is pretty naive because uh, a barrel of oil does four and a half years of minor years or Shiloh's work. We're not going to leave that in the ground. Um, so uh, long story short, I, I think the physics and the geology uh, point to the best case, which is the, um, the below ground situation of oil is 
it's hitting its maximum now and is going to go into permanent irretrievable decline. The way that that could be offset is maybe with artificial intelligence, we could do two things. We could find a few new provinces that used to be um, economically off limits. And now there's new techniques that AI helps us with to get that out. Or we can have 10 or 20% less oil in the global economy, but that's okay because AI has found more efficient ways um, or different energy sources that in combination with less oil still enable us to live the way we are now and grow the economic system. That was a lot. Did that make sense? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I think that there's a horrifying aspect of continuing to live as as we live now because i i think that across the board so many systems are broken that there's i have a pretty strong negative reaction to the idea that we would be able to continue business as usual because it seems like we've been so taken over by the algorithms that it chokes people out i mean i would i guess we'd be remiss if we didn't at least explore the possibility of electric fuel economies and consider, you know, the contribution of potential future nuclear powers, including fusion. But, you know, how about good old fission coupled to some really good battery technology? I know California is trying to get away from combustion engines. They have, what is it, like 2030? They plan to have no combustion engines mm. on the road. What's, uh, what's to stop people from just adapting to the lack of an oil reservoir in the future? This itself is a three-hour conversation. <laughs> um, so from, first of all, from, a, so there's there's two ways we need to, two reasons we need to get off of oil. Um, one is we're running out of it and it's not going to be here, so we have to live differently. And I don't think there is a substitute for oil. So living differently means using less material consumption eventually the other reason is that oil when it's burned releases co2 in the atmosphere and the atmosphere is pretty darn full of co2 90 percent of the heat has gone into oceans 25 percent of the co2 has been absorbed in the oceans creating acidification so from a climate standpoint we need to stop burning this stuff immediately the problem is is we don't look at what we face with a systemic vantage point. We look at oil is bad, therefore um, we need, but energy is important. So let's do low carbon energy. Let's do electric cars. Um, let's build solar panels and wind turbines, keeping everything else the same. And I could make a pretty good argument that renewables, the way that we're using them now have made climate change worse. Because what's happening is we're growing renewables faster than we're growing oil and coal use, but we're still growing global energy use overall. So on an absolute basis, since the 2015 Paris Agreement, we've added 200 gigawatt globally of coal capacity. Um, we're breaking all-time records now of coal use even in the face of more renewable and lots more electric cars, because the global South um, wants to catch up and have the good things in life that the global North has had. 
And by the way, the global north uses the global south as its industrial outsourcing. Mm. Uh, all the things that we get on the ships that come from China where the coal is burned, even though we are uh, in the United States using far less coal than we, we have in the past because we outsource our manufacturing. So um, in our current world, uh, driving an electric car is marginally better for um, um, CO2, but just marginally for the lifetime because all of the parts of the car are made from plastics and other materials that require oil. All of the roads, the millions and millions of road uh, miles of asphalt asphalt is oil it comes it's the bottom of a barrel of oil the entire industrial process requires uh, petrochemicals to create if we stopped needing gasoline completely let's just say thought experiment we didn't need any more gasoline for cars and that all of our cars were electric we would still need the exact same number of barrels of oil, at least at the beginning, because the world still needs diesel fuel to power all of our heavy machinery. We still need the jet fuel. We still need the asphalt. We still need the plastic precursors for medicines and football helmets and camping tents and chairs and podcast mics and all that comes from uh, from petroleum. Now, over time, we could... Um, we could switch the refineries uh, at a cost so that we could maybe um, require 15% less of oil if we didn't need gasoline. But we're if we really don't want to use oil, um, it will be a massive, massive shift to our economy. And if it happened in a less than a decadal timescale, it would, would result in collapse. Um, but getting to your other question, Shiloh, um, nuclear is a viable uh, sort of energy, but nuclear and solar and wind produce electricity. Electricity is only 20% of our global um, use of energy. Um, and we can, with abundant electricity, turn that into some of the products that is the other 80% um at a cost um but nuclear solar and wind are uh, see this gets back to what is the objective do we really want energy or is it what we're really after is power and power there's social power i'm not talking about that power is from a physics standpoint energy per unit time so solar and wind produce electrons um, when the sun is shining or the wind is burning and they have to be then spent into a system and used when the humans want to use them. So we have to use them right away or they have to be stored. Coal and natural gas and oil are already stored. They are not kinetic energy, they are potential energy, which we can flick a switch whenever we want them. So right now the world all of the world uses 19 terawatts, give or take, continuously of energy. 19 terawatts is 19 trillion watts. And that works out to about 190 billion 100 watt light bulbs 
turned on all the time, 24-7. So we're growing solar panels capacity aggressively one gigawatt per day. So if we did that, if we continue to grow one gigawatt of solar per day, it will take 270 years to get to 19 terawatts. But a solar panel only lasts 25 years. So we would still have, so let's say we're doing, we let's say that starting in 2024, we do 10 times more solar than we are today. Even that amount, we would is only enough to get to the attrition of what uh, is used and spent and then 25 years needs to be rebuilt. It is an impossibility to live like we live today with renewable energy. I think that um, the real answer is we're going to have to use less. And once we shift the objective from continuing to grow. And by the way, here's one other thing I didn't mention, and then I'll get back to this point. In an effort to decarbonize the economy with electric cars and uh, batteries and everything, we have to rematerialize the economy because electric cars and the copper wires and all the transformation uh, uh, transformers and, and um, power stations and all that will need orders of magnitude more copper and lithium and neodymium and molybdenum and nickel and, and boron and things like that, that both the impact on the global south and the natural world will be astronomical. So we tend to not look at the world in terms of systems. We tend to look at one thing, let's optimize for carbon, but then we forget all these other things. So my view is, this is going to be a, um, all of the above strategy. We should be looking at nuclear fusion. Although if nuclear fusion was developed today, it would still be decades before the safety and the storage and all the complexity if we we're actually using it. Um, nuclear fission, sure, it, it can play a role. Um, but it can't replace the hemoglobin that is oil in our current system. Um, and the other thing is, is I think we're out of time and I don't, I, I don't think that we have decades to figure all this stuff out. Um, there is the, uh, the, what I call, um, I don't know if you want me to talk about this or not, but, um, I talk about the four horsemen of the 2020s. Uh, the first one is our financial uh, decoupling with our biophysical reality. We we keep printing more claims on a uh, shrinking biophysical reality, and sometime there's going to be a uh, the music of the musical chair stops. The second is geopolitics. Um, you know, the BRICS nations now produce over 50 percent of the world's exportable oil. And there are wars in Ukraine and Russia. There's wars in the Middle East. Uh, 50 to 60% of the world's remaining oil reserves is within a thousand miles of, of Tel Aviv, as one example, is why there's so many military bases in the Middle East. The third horseman is complexity. And all of the 150,000 SKUs we have in the supermarket and where the components of those came from and the pharmaceutical um, precursors are 90% made in India and China for all of our medicines. And the United States uses 50% of the world's medical prescriptions as one example. We have a six continent just in time supply chain. 
uh, that gets us all this stuff. It's incredibly complex. And the fourth horseman, which unfortunately uh, you two in Oregon and me in Wisconsin are going to be watching with front row seats in the next 24 months uh, based on the next election, is the social contract in our cultures that the polarization and the difficulty of humans to have conversations about what really matters beyond their own ideology and entrenched um, worldviews is really, really difficult. I mean, could you imagine having a town hall meeting on the topics that we've been discussing this last hour and a half? Uh, it's it's really complex and threatening and scary and nuanced. There'd be like so, three people at that town hall meeting where we live. <laughs> we, we, yeah, we don't we don't actually live in Ashton, by the way. We live out in the sticks. So. Really? Yeah, it would probably. But be, Ashland's uh, the closest town. It's very yeah. It's the closest. Uh, it's the closest intellectual town. town. Let's put it that way. Yeah. It's the closest town where you'd find anybody probably interested in discussing these issues. I think that I actually think that people are really, really interested in discussing these issues because they subconsciously understand that they're going to be affected by them. Mm -hmm. And the movement forward requires people to come together to actually talk about how to address all of these things and to agree on strategies. Yeah. But I think that this would be a good way, a good topic for the back half of this. How about we take a really short break? I want to get some more coffee. Use the restroom. Sure. Let's do it. Uh, um, 10 minutes? I, I mean, I'm fire hose wide open here. I, I don't know that this is what you guys wanted or not. I, I mean, I could talk for 10 hours. There's so much to talk about. I it's, don't want to talk for 10 hours. I'm just saying <laughs> this is a huge freaking story. Yeah. Yeah, I want to I want to unpack. I'm not quite done picking on nuclear either, too. Okay. Sure. Okay. Yeah, tell okay. a bit more. Uh, so yeah, let's yeah, take a 10 minute I've, break. Yeah, I'll, I'll come back. 10, 10 minutes? Yeah, 10 minutes past. Okay. okay, I'll be back. See you in a minute. We are delighted to announce that Demysticon 2024, our very first scientific conference, is officially launched and you can buy tickets right now at the link in the description and also in the link that is up in either this corner or this corner. We are going to gather in Austin, Texas on April 7th and 8th of 2024 for two days of talks on consciousness, mythology, archaeology, solar physics, hypnosis, and much, much more. Buy tickets now up at this link. It seems to me like the biggest difference between us and our ancestors is that we don't have a way of celebrating anything approximating a value system outside of the concept of success. It's like, how do we celebrate that without, you know, no, nobody's going to go back to these tyrannical religions, right? Those are less popular than ever before. But we don't have a common mythology to unite us. We don't have this, this way of celebrating our aims that are outside of the context of personal success. And as soon as we do, it gets tchotchkefied, right? You, you have some, let's say you have an ecological identity. Well, what happens to that? It becomes something that they sell you, you know, Lululemon leggings and crystals mm -hmm. as, a, as, as the hallmark of that identity. Right. So, so, it, so building on that, Nastya, is, and to answer Shiloh's question, the culture that won is the economic superorganism. It outcompeted these other cultures. And it's not because it was better or worse. It, it, it just won in the game of power accumulation. And it's sweeping over all these other things. So my point is, if we add nuclear fusion or some new low-carbon technology, but the economic superorganism is still the driver of things, 
it will lead to bad outcomes. I get and that. This is, I get that. Yeah. Yeah. And so this is one of my concepts. I think uh, there's lots of possible futures, but I parse them into two two distinct categories. One is uh, what I refer to as the Mordor economy, uh, a reference to um, the Lord of the Rings and, and Mount Doom. Um, and what that is, is we continue with the superorganism and we invent some new energy and we print more money and we kick more cans and we have some new inventions and we continue to grow the gross amount of energy that we use. Um, and there's a distinction between the gross and the net. So say you make a salary of $100,000 a year, but you have to pay 30,000 to the government in taxes. So your gross is 100 and your net is 70. In the same way, societies have a gross and a net on the amount of energy that we use. So um, in 1999, we had a seven century low in how much energy we had to use to get all the rest of the energy to the rest of society in the hospitals and shopping centers and universities and research facilities. In 1999, we only needed 5% of our energy to discover, refine, and deliver the energy to the rest. So 95% of our energy could be used for all those other things that are good for a society. Now we're over 10% of our energy is required to find the oil and refine it or build polysilicon uh, manufacturing facilities or a big tokamak uh, reactor or or whatever it is uh it's 10 headed to 12 or 15 percent that's good for gdp because when we burn energy it adds to gdp but what ends up happening is uh, only 88 percent of the energy that is produced is usable by hospitals and shopping centers and podcast hosts and vacations and things like that and eventually if we had to 20% of our energy is needed for energy itself, energy and materials, by the way, mining, um, then only 80% is left. So that's what I refer to as a Mordor economy is if we're somehow able to continue to grow for the next decade or beyond, more and more of our economic activity will be directed to the mining and manufacturing part of humanity, as well as we will need more energy and money directed towards environmental remediation because of hurricanes and, um, you know, all, all other environmental mitigations that we need money to, to make better. In other words, the Mordor economy is still a growing economy, but there's less benefits to the way humans used to have them, and there's more environmental damage. So nuclear in that sense um, could allow us to continue to kick the can. Uh, but I think unless we change our governance structures, it's still going to be more of the same. One more important point about nuclear. Of all the energy sources out there, the topic of nuclear has got the most polarized uh, fans and detractors. It is, a, it is a very fanatical people on both sides. I'm an agnostic. I actually think we should research thorium reactors and other things because it's gonna we're gonna need all kinds of things going forward and i have to cross my fingers that humanity will collectively get our act together and come up with different governance and responses to what we face 
My biggest problem with nuclear is it presumes uh, an indefinite um, control by humans and that civilization continues indefinitely. Because at some point in the future, if we have, well, right now we have 450 nuclear reactors, plus or minus, um, if the world stops growing and there is a end to the civilization that we know it, nuclear in that point would be the gift that keeps on giving if all of a sudden we didn't have the complexity to keep the diesel generators going as backup uh, plants for all those. So all of the pro-nuclear people just presume that civilization will continue indefinitely, and I don't think that's necessarily a valid uh, assumption. But that's an assumption that we have to push for. I feel that very strongly. Uh, as a woman, I feel like it's really necessary to keep civilization going because I know where it goes if we don't. And I feel, and for men too, I feel like there's like some real darkness there because I, I just, the war and violence and all of the things that happen in the in the absence of civilization. Like this is the crazy thing about the moment in which we live. It sucks. But it is also the best moment that has ever been on the history of the planet. I can go to any sink in my house and turn on and get instant hot water. I clean hot water. Clean hot water. There's the, the, I'm not a particularly materialistic person, but all of my wants and needs are provided for. I eat like a king every single night. And for the, the three of us, this is true. This is not necessarily true for, um, you know, the 8 billion people on the planet. But I hear you. It is it's, both fantastic and perilous. Well, most of them are starving to death for the first time in history, which is pretty incredible. I think it was 200 years ago, it was like 90% of people spent their days making sure they could eat. Now it's less than 10% of, I think, of the world population. I mean, even 100 years ago, during the Great Depression, I'm reading uh, Robert Caro's biography of Robert Moses. And he, there's a section where he talks about New York City during the Great Depression. And it's, it's horrifying. It's all of these people living in horrific tenement housing conditions that are daily on the street picking through garbage in order to survive. So let, let me make uh, a really important distinction. Other than my value system of the other species we share the planet with, everything else I'm talking about, I'm talking about as a scientist and as an observer. I am not anti-civilization. I am not anti-technology. I'm not anti-nuclear. I'm describing that the benefits that you just um, uh, were proud of and uh, content to have are a product of the carbon pulse, which we are now at the peak of which is the reason that I'm doing this conversation with you and others is to make more people educated and aware that this fossil subsidy that has been invisible and we've taken for granted, it's not going to disappear, but it's gradually going to become less. And the implications of that are we're going to have to reorganize and change our civilization. Otherwise, civilization will be at risk. And my comment on nuclear was at some point in the future, if even if it's 200 years from now and we have thousands of nuclear plants and then there's a disruption, then that is a cost into the future if that's not taken into account. I don't spend a lot of time on that, Shiloh, but that is a, an assumption in there. Now, well, I, um, I, 
I really I think that's really important. It's like I, I'm very skeptical that we'll be able to technologify ourselves out of every single crisis. There's there's ample myth from the past from deep ancestors of fallen civilizations who have told us that you know it, if you try to sort of turn your back on harmony, let's say let's let's say maybe they would call it God or the cosmos or something like that, and, and you think you can shine brighter than the brightest star it ends up in you basically ending up in this eternal hell pit. And and that seems to be playing out to, to the extent that the technological solutions that have been ushered out to replace social interactions and so forth don't really seem to be making people feel connected or happy. And in general, these things seem like they're not going to solve our problems if our problem is fundamentally how we're organized as people. And it seems like that's what you're talking about when you say we need to change the way that we govern ourselves or the way, well, what are those changes that you imagine? Have you ever heard of a guy named Ian McGilchrist? Yeah, we had him on a, we had, we did a podcast with him a long, long time ago. So did I. Um, I think he's a wonderful man. And his point that we optimize um, in our culture, left brain, um, individualistic siloed um explanations of things as opposed to a right brain holistic how things are connected connected to nature is part and parcel of of why we're in this situation and i think fossil energy surplus and monetary surplus all feed into that left brain um dynamic um i i think it's really a gut check emergent sort of situation because the intelligence and power dynamic that caused this consumptive culture to outcompete those ancestral uh, voices of wisdom you just described that is what's brought us to the precipice and so we are the first generation of our species. And by the way, of all the humans that have ever lived, give or take 10% of us are alive right now. Um, and we kind of had to come to this point where we um, know what we're doing to nature. We know what it relies on as fossil energy and materials. We know what really brings us uh, happiness. We have massive technology. Um, we know what's possible in the future. And so it's really a, a species level conversation that we've arrived at. And at the same time, it's, it's really using the superorganism metaphor. We're kind of like self-aware cancer cells that are starting to come to terms with how large this predicament is and how, how does that self-organize in a way that, um, has a descent path that is holistic and humane um, and keeps the best things about civilization intact. I don't know the answer to that. Um, the title of my podcast is The Great Simplification. And there's a couple of marketing ways that that, that I use that term. Number one is I simplify complex stories so that more people can understand. For most people in North America listening to it, simplifying their lives would actually be great. But the real scientific reason for this term is Joseph Tainer wrote a famous book called The, the, the Collapse of Complex Societies. 
that humans over time encounter problems and we're really clever and we coordinate and cooperate and collaborate and solve those problems by adding complexity to a system. Adding complexity to a system requires adding more nodes of energy. And so as the society has grown and gotten more complex, we keep adding more energy. We need to import spark plugs from South Korea to put in our cars and the black paint on Ford trucks only comes from Fukushima Daiichi Prefecture and things like that. Uh, um, as we complexify, we need more energy. But as we have less energy, which is my prediction in the not too distant future, we will do the inverse of complexify. We will be forced to simplify because our, our civilizational structure will be too, um, uh, too many nodes for the amount of energy we have. So we're going to have to uh, have more simpler, more local, more regional, less global ways of living. Um, and that's scary, but it's also exciting. Maybe uh, living in Oregon, you get 80% of the inputs to your economic system from British Columbia, Washington, Idaho, Arizona, um, and, and California, for instance, instead of South Korea, China, Bangladesh, uh, Guam, or, or, or whatever it is. So there's an economic theory called comparative advantage, which is the um, banana and guns thing that you specialize and you put all your effort into bananas and I'll put all my effort into computers. And if we specialize, the world will be better off. And that's true. It actually works out that way. But that's because we had this unbelievably cheap subsidy of transport of gasoline and fossil carbon that that won't continue in the past. That and letters of credit and finance and things like that. So. I think a simpler um, economy, which which is which is which is hard to predict at the same time that AI is going to complexify parts of society, um, but at some point we're going to have a smaller, more local economy, and I think that's coming in the next decade. I could be wrong. I mean, um, I could see that definitely yeah. happening, but I feel like there will still be this incentive to become part of the tiny percent that's able to import those spices from afar and able to ah. taste those fine products ah. from the, the, the distant places, right? I think the person, the average Joe, like ourselves, is going to be stock eating local whatever, cockroaches or whatever. But the question is, like, won't those same people be even then more driven towards material success so that they can ascend to be part of the increasingly elite okay. fraction that's able to actually participate in life as it, say, used so, to so be? So this, this is a fascinating... Uh, um, question and something I think about a lot. You've heard of um, the the fable and the the fairy tale of the tortoise and the hare, mm. and that the hare went really fast, but the tortoise went really slow and ultimately won the race. I think you're right. Is as things become more precarious, those that have power are going to be the last to give up the drive for more, and from an energy, let's just talk about it. And and uh, Nastia wanted to talk about geopolitics. Europe um, is probably going to be okay this winter, but in coming winters, because the pipelines are now destroyed um, from Russia, 
they're going to have real energy problems, like real energy poverty, um, unless some miracle occurs. So Europe is going to be forced to simplify before the United States is from an energy material standpoint. Germany is already deindustrializing. There's thousands of chemical and other plants that can't make money anymore, and they're going out of business. So Europe is going to have to simplify and figure out how to do this, while the United States metaphorically continues to import the expensive spices and things that you just said. Now, which place will be better off? as a metaphor for us average Joes versus the elites, because Europe will face a hardship earlier and self-organize around more resilient, more human-centered, more local things. And it will suck, it will suck but it will also be, uh, they're figuring it out. Um, and then they're going to have stability. Where the U.S., since we produce 90% plus of our own energy, we won't be in that same situation unless there's some global financial um, uh, event where all countries are, are attached at the hip. But that's a separate discussion. The U.S. is still quite energy independent. So are we the, are we the hare and, and they're the tortoise? Um, the implication of what I'm saying is profound because as individuals, we can choose to simplify those of us with at least some modicum of uh, material comfort, we can choose to simplify now and beat the rush, not to save the planet um, per se, but to practice resilience and um, start living with less, start, start preparing your mind and your ethos and your lifestyle for less energy and material throughput because that's likely to be in our future. And the sooner that you become used to that, the better off you're going to be. I agree with you that actually those people that have a lot of power are going to be the last ones to, to, to give up. Um, so this, this inequality thing is also a really deep issue here. I mean, right now, all of the local products are the mo most expensive ones in the grocery store, which is really interesting. So I would certainly welcome that change. I mean, I'm already trying to seek out local meat, local honey, right? These are very expensive, though, because, of course, they're not raised in the same industrial pipeline that everything mm -hmm. that you would buy an alternative is. So that would be interesting. But in terms of people like not really being oriented towards growth, it's like when I, I wanted to talk about this when you talked about the reasons that people make money and we talked about comfort and so forth. But when I, I just stopped for a second and asked myself why I wanted to make money, and it's really because it's a gas for doing more of the work in the world that I want to do, right? The only thing I'm going to spend money on is is doing more of the projects that I love and doing them with more impact and, and wider reach. And I wonder if that isn't a very common way of thinking that a lot of people who are moving up that that financial ladder are thinking about it. I mean, there's only so many yachts that can that you can have or something, right? At some point, you must be motivated by the, the will to actually affect change in the world and, and kind of do stuff, remake this place. And so mm, I, I, I just, I, I want, with that. no, you don't think so. I think you're pretty unique in that. I'm the same way that you are. Um, uh, and my advice to you on that is um, take your salary or whatever and get someone to support the work uh, so that the work is supported um, and then you live your own humble existence while someone else is paying for your 
your social impact with your efforts. But uh, we look we look forward to all of your recommendations for billionaires. We should reach out to. <laughs> <laughs> um, I, in my experience, a lot of my former uh, friends on Wall Street, it is a rat race where they're just trying to have more because you can never have enough optionality on an uncertain future. Um, now, do humans naturally want more? And I think the answer to that is interesting, or my hypothesis to the answer is interesting. I think in our ancestral environment, we didn't want more uh, because we had enough and we only had to work like 15 to 20 hours a week. Uh, and we spent time singing and sleeping and playing in the bushes, etc. We are born into an economic system that advertises that we should have more and the um the uncertainty of the future and all the risks that we've been discussing make us want to have that nest egg in case something bad happens um i think there is a compulsion that um the poorer people will always want to have more so they can go to the nicer restaurant or take a vacation there is an embedded drive for more in this economic system, but I do not think that is hardwired into the human genome to want more. It's just a product of living in a, a stratified culture with a lot of energy surplus. I wonder about now, that. The, because the, the short I... circuit of that is I, I, when I left Wall Street, all my friends, I had no money, really. I left Wall Street after a short time. So all my friends were way richer than I was. And so then I surrounded myself by PhD ecologist students and farmers who had less money than I did. And I was like totally lost my drive to, to compete for more money. I was competing for cool papers and ideas and uh, pro-social um, uh, responses. And it's who you surround yourself by is really important on your motivations. Yeah, maybe maybe we just spend too much time with artists and intellectuals to notice what's actually happening. I mean, oh, don't you think yeah. Wall Street's kind of a weird case, though? Like, I don't, I don't mean to. I hope this isn't insulting or something or anything, but I, I mean, it's it's a bit parasitic in that you know Hudson and Keen talk about this with regard to unearned income, right? Where you're basically just kind of siphoning wealth out of the system as opposed to actually like building anything as a result of it. Like the pro the actual development of well being and product isn't really there. So maybe it's on the other end of the spectrum. Uh, that's where you see people who are maybe slightly more pathologically oriented in their motivations. I think more than slightly, Shiloh. Um, have you heard of uh, the dark triad? Mm. Yeah, remind, triad remind me. Is, um, uh, uh, the composite and the intersection of three personality traits. One is narcissism. One is um, Machiavellianism. And one is uh, psychopathy. And 10% of the population has all three of those traits in, in a strong way. And I don't know what's been proven on this. I would bet that in high political office and on Wall Street, there's a much higher preponderance uh, than 10%. 10% mm -hmm. is, the, is the average um, across society. And, and it seems like the unifying... Self-selected for that. Right. It seems like the unifying feature across all those is this this uh what is it this priority on short-term gains versus long-term and long range like in terms of the interactome success of the population it's, it's very it's very short-sighted fundamentally it's like 
What's the well, psycho the psychopath just thinks, ah, I can exploit these people and then I'll just pick up and move to a new social group or I'll move to a new town and do it all over again. Well, we talked about that earlier with the optionality. I, I don't know that I think humans generally are short sighted. Um, we're biological creatures. Um, the level of short sightedness or preference for the, the present versus the future is in psychology called impulsivity and in economics it's referred to as a discount rate and you can measure different demographics and they have different discount rates men have steeper discount rates than women which stands to reason right because we need 10 minutes or 15 minutes to procreate and women need a year after you get pregnant and you have a baby and you have to raise a baby it's a, it's a full year investment whereas men have a sh very short investment so from a biological standpoint, for many reasons, women have shallower discount rates than men and can care and think about the future more. Um, drug addicts, um, uh, um, all kinds of different uh, demographics have steeper discount rates that, that they're unable to think about the future relative to today. Uh, I forgot all the uh, different categories that, that are in there. But I think it's um, it's it's manifested as a cultural discount rate that um, we we really don't care uh, about the future. I mean, we can imagine the future, but it's no more palpable or real to us than a leprechaun. Um, and I think people, you know, if you think about the year twenty one hundred in the climate models, twenty one hundred is is now closer to us than World War Two. Um, but I think it's really difficult to imagine time as, as humans. And there's something called a hyperbolic discount rate, which is we care the difference between that. Well, the difference between this weekend and next weekend is steeper than the difference of caring about next weekend versus the following weekend. So humans are incredibly short-term focused. And when we get stressed, that difference accelerates. Um, so it's, it I seems think like that's just... like an increasingly modern phenomenon though. And I think that it's related to what you said about the degradation. Well, what we started off talking about the degradation of the spirit and people feeling less engaged or interested in, in the outcome of the world in some sense, and, and really tied into the crisis of meaning, because when you take on the responsibility for the future, that's when you achieve the sensation of meaning. And, and that striving to do that seems to be the only thing capable of giving people meaning, right? I, well, yeah. So, yes, you're right. You hang around with artists and podcast hosts too much because I agree with you. Sure. Doing the work that I'm doing with this podcast gives me immense meaning. And I'm not paid uh, for this. I have a salary. I'm doing this for free. All of our channels are for free. We have monetization turned off because I feel a deep profound fiduciary responsibility to pass the baton to other humans to play a role in what's coming. But you're right that for the longest time, um, theology and the various religions were the goal of humans. And the last century or so, that was somewhat replaced by economic growth was our religion. Economic growth and technology were what gave us meaning. Um, and somewhere in there, convenience and dopamine and fun and and all the things that technology gave us 
But we deeply face a meaning crisis. And to me, the only thing that makes sense is the sacredness of what remains of the natural world, which still in the profusion of uh, fish and oxygenated waters and the 1700 species of birds in Ecuador and all of the biodiversity that still exists in its diminished form still makes this the only place in the universe one might logically call heaven. Um, so protecting that um, is the only thing of meaning that really makes sense to me over the remaining decades of my life. So that is a, a North Star for my behaviors and, and my motivations. But I think society right now is left versus right, Biden versus Trump, apathy, mental illness, 95% of us plus, including me, have trauma living in this culture. And we can't just hear facts and then know what to do. It's more, I think we've reached a point where we know a lot about things, but we don't really know things. Um, and I do just in a blurry way in the future, see a, a new purpose for society, which is an ecological civilization where we have less material um, uh, well-being, but we have more uh, social well-being, that we replace uh, financial capital as a marker for the things that really matter with real capital, which is human capital, our, our health, uh, our knowledge, uh, social capital, which is our friends, our networks, our relationships, natural capital, which is the Siskiyou foothills and Lithia Creek and, and the ecosystems in Oregon and in Wisconsin, um, and build capital, which is the things we have, the solar panels or the chainsaws or the aloe vera plants or, or, or the podcast microphones or whatever it is. And, and we have like a thorn in our paw. We've treated financial capital as the thing and it is making us sick and yet we're compelled to want more of it. Um, and it's really like Rod Serling, where he's still alive, could have written a hell of a Twilight Zone episode about our current culture. Um, am, am I am I going too far off off topic? No, I, I think that we absolutely do need to reorient. I, I, I just wonder. Look, I'm not a religious person at all, but I, I look at the simplification of putting an overarching myth that orients you towards a cosmic responsibility, let's say. And I think how wonderful that is in terms of giving people something to aim towards that isn't just their own financial capital. And yeah. without that, I see all of these problems arising. And of course, yeah, we've lost the tyranny of the church and, you know, women's rights and everything, right? There's been a lot of gains of turning our back on superstition. But I wonder how in the future we all get on the same page with regard to all of those values that you listed, which I share very much. But I wonder how we can celebrate those as a nation, as an actual people who live next to each other in this country or whatever country you're in. How do we celebrate those without a religion? And if we do have a religion, does it have to be the sort of silly, superstitious religion that people turn their backs on? Or can it be something more like ceremonial celebration of that value system? Is that a potential path forward? I don't know. I think so. In some ways, you are talking about a religion, which would be the animist religion, 
which is trees and places have their own special uh, origin. And we did, we still celebrate December 21st, June 21st as the shortest and longest day of the year. I mean, we have those embedded. I, I think ritual and ceremony and those things are part of the human genome and physiology. I think you're using the term religion quite broadly. I think we could have a religious connection of something spiritual that is really important to us without believing in a supreme being, uh, being responsible for it. Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I do think there needs to be some collective uh, narrative, colorful, deep, interconnected response on the horizon. Um, because if we're all little self-aware cancer cells of the superorganism, I don't think that's going to work out so well, which is why as an educator, a former college professor, and now a podcast video creator guy, I am incredibly worried about AI's impact on polarization and education. Um, because I don't know if people are going to really understand what's true and not. And if we can't trust in science and information and media, how will we be able to even agree on the facts or the, the reality um, of our situation? Climate change is a perfect example. Most people in the world are absolutely believe in climate change and are very worried about it. In our country, only 50% of people are really worried about it because of the polarization and the money that has been spent on disinformation, et cetera. Um, and I, yeah, I don't, I don't know what, what to say about that. I, on my own podcast, I'm really frustrated because I've had some really expert climate scientists on and I have more on the horizon. And what ends up happening in an hour and a half discussion is the discussion of the actual science of what's happening and the opinion of what do we do about it gets smushed together. And if people don't like the prescription, then they forget about the actual science. And I think there are two distinct stories. Let's understand what's happening and why. Okay, let's really pin that down. Then separate conversation, what are the possible things that we could do? Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I in my experience, this is the crux of it, because there's a certain type of person that does not like being told what to do. And a lot of these conversations about what the future will look like come through a top-down lens of these master plans for what economies are going to look like, the way that resources are going to be allocated, we're going to have AI that drives all of the systems and it's almost like it's almost like re a reemergence of centrally planned economics i've heard people starting to say that you know it failed in the soviet union but it failed in the soviet union because they just didn't have enough compute and now we're yeah. getting to the point where we can really understand complexity and so maybe it's going to be possible to start to do that and in doing so, we'll be able to redirect the flow of finance and capital in a way that's more yeah. secure. Well, I have many responses to that. First <laughs> of all, a few weeks ago, I did a Frankly called Artificial Intelligence and Real Ecology. And mirroring what I said earlier, as long as AI and technology are underneath the hierarchy of um, the human aspirations and that economic growth 
and profits are above it, AI will continue to make our ecological situation worse because it might make things more efficient, <clears throat> but just like shale technology did, it will function as a larger straw on Earth's ecosystems. But to what you were also saying um, at the at the crux of it, God dang it, nasty, I forgot. What were you saying at the beginning of that? I had a good thought. Uh, centrally planned economies. Oh, yeah. So I think... Here's here's the problem. I'm trying. I am not an advocate for authoritarian regime. I am certainly not an advocate of what's called the Great Reset. And by the way, I came up with the Great Simplification many years before Klaus Schwab had the Great Reset. I am not saying climate change is a problem and we have oil depletion, so we need big government. But what I am saying is that's coming, and we're going to have to prepare for it. But I think. We're just starting to see this. I think, especially on the left, there's a, an authoritarian uh, um, movement uh, that people want government to come in and make the rules and do things. I think over time, as as the um, the whites of the eyes of our situation become more obvious to everyone, I think people's political ideology will ultimately be a lot about power, and they will want power for their side to do things the way that they they think should be done. And I, I hate to say this, but I actually think more and more people of all political stripes will be turning towards an authoritarian bent in the coming decade. Hmm. Uh, I mean, just by virtue of... Everybody wants a strong protector in kind of these... Well, they, they, they want... Yes, there's that. But it's because that will give their side the power to do things against the other side. And so I, I think, um, you know, this, this gets into um, difficult waters uh, in discussing it. And I'm not an expert on this, but democracy of the kind we have today is also a product of the carbon pulse. Mm, that's interesting. Well, think about it. I mean, we we've had a tide that has lifted all boats, um, irrespective of, of country or, or position, incredibly cheap goods and high wages have allowed a lot of people to just pursue their own uh, uh, means. And so, yeah, we shift on our value system or more conservative traditional values without big government, or let's help the environment and the poor people. And so we've shifted into different uh, political flavors, but all of that is, is been secondary to the larger force of a growing economy. And if the economy is shrinking, how, how will we have an open society and democracy in that environment? I, I don't know. I'm not saying it won't happen. I'm just trying to uh, envision how it happened because this gets to what Shiloh said. Look at what's happening in the Netherlands and Austria uh, and Germany and other places, especially because Europe has been uh, bearing the brunt of the Ukraine-Russia uh, situation and the higher energy prices, is people are voting for more of a rightward shift. And part of the reason is the rightward politicians say, we want things to be the way they used to be. And progressives want change. 
I want change. But what's happening now is a momentum of a biophysical story. And it's not the fault of anyone. It's the fault of decisions that were made long ago. And now the, the energy and the ecology and the money and all that stuff is coming due. We're paying a bill that's been uh, overdue for a couple generations. But um, if you look at the big five personality traits, um, openness to new experience is a, a definite uh, progressive trait. Whereas I want to keep things the way they, they are is more of a conservative trait. Like on a scale of zero to 100, um, on the tests that I've done, I'm 100 <laughs> on, on being open to new experiences. But when people are stressed and when there's anxiety and worry about the future, people tend to get more conservative. And that's why I think there's going to be a rightward shift in voting um, in, in the coming decade around the world as resources become more expensive and less available. I'm not advocating that. I'm, I'm not saying, hey, we need to do something about that. It's just a prediction that I see unfolding from a biophysical perspective. And by the way, on my podcast, and I, know, I don't know much about your podcast, um, I am patently unpolitical. I'm trying to describe what is happening. Um, I am quite upset by the far left, and I'm quite upset by the far right. Uh, because they get a lot of things wrong, and I'm trying to describe uh, this process. Um, it doesn't really matter how I vote or what I think about. I'm trying to describe what's going on for all of us uh, as we go through this. Because I think once you go to a, a left or right flavor, then you've lost the meta-modern capacity to invite a broader conversation. And I think we need people from all stripes and all belief systems and all demographics as part of this conversation to navigate uh, through what's coming. And it's really difficult because right now, motivated reasoning and ideology and people's identities are primary because the story I'm telling, you don't have to agree with all of it. But if you do agree with it, for most people, it is an immediate risk to their built identity. Oh, I have three kids and I have this speedboat and this is my job and I plan on this retirement thing and I've worked really hard. And this guy's telling me that the economy is going to get tougher and shrink and there's going to be these things. That is really difficult to take on board cognitively and emotionally for a lot of people, um, which is why also I do know social media advertising of my stuff because i don't want to foist this story on everyone i don't want to have a megaphone hey everyone out there we're headed for a great simplification i'm looking to send a bat signal out to those curious pro-social humans that want to play a role in this to understand the game board and then do what is in their power and their value system and their passion to play a role but it's not for everyone. And a lot of people are already up to here with stress and anxiety and just trying to pay the bills. Last week I uh, or next Sunday, I have a roundtable. Every month I have a roundtable. And this one is on poverty in the United States. And then 41% of U.S. households are what's called ALICE. ALICE is asset limited, income constrained, but still employed. A-L-I-C-E. 41%. Of the households in our country. So are we really one of the richest countries in the world? 
Uh, there's a big difference between mean or average and median, which is midpoint. Um, anyways. That's actually a really interesting point because uh, when we've talked to Michael Hudson before, he's always banging on about the fact that GDP is calculated with all of these rent-seeking industries. And so we have a sense that we're the richest country in the world, but we have all of our financial markets, all of our real estate markets inside of GDP. And like Shiloh said earlier, if you're paying rent and the rental income off of that property is considered part of GDP, you have this weird... You're actually getting poorer, but your country seems to be looking richer. And so I wonder, is there a a calculation of GDP without those things included that somebody's done? Well, there there used to be, um, and because it was by those uh, commie lefties that discovered it, it got discontinued because they didn't have funding. But in my field of ecological economics, there was something that was designed called the Genuine Progress Indicator, uh, which uh, was in the 70s. And I think it it went all the way to the mid-2000s. And I don't know if some versions of it are still out there. But instead of just adding all the goods and services on their gross level as benefits, they would subtract out social ills like um, prison populations or rape counseling or forest destruction and anything that was actually bad for our well-being was a negative from and and that indicator peaked in 1971 or 72 and has been declining ever since. So um, yes, there are broader alternative metrics to GDP um, and. I actually started a pilot two years ago in Wisconsin called How Are We, um, where we interviewed 25,000 people in a county and we ran out of money. We were going to do it for the whole state of Wisconsin um, and asked the people, what does well-being really mean to you? And we interviewed people um, and cataloged a lot of responses. And I'll just give you a couple of the preliminary takeaways. 90% of people were worried about money because they were worried if they got sick, they wouldn't have enough money to pay for their health care. 95% of people ranked luxury goods and consumption at 10 10 out of 10, the the least important thing in their life. Um, uh, Having quality time with loved ones, having job security, having health insurance, those things were ranked really at the top. So I I think GDP as a nation, aggregated as a a total number divided by 330 million people, is not correlated with our human individual well-being, uh, nor our ecosystem health. So I would hope that in the future we could have kind of a shadow metric, because we can't just discard GDP because it actually is a good metric for uh, you know, progress and development in some ways. But I think we need to have a mirror or a shadow or a sister metric on, on well-being and how we're actually doing as humans and uh, on a broader note, um, the ecosystems and other species who have no voice in our economic decisions. And that metric has to have power, right? It has to actually be a part of decision-making in terms of geopolitics. Well, well this is the thing, Shiloh. So I think economics is a lot of economic theory is mostly bullshit. I, I could tell you if we had time, 30 or 40 myths 
within economics. Um, all of the economists or all yeah, though they're called economists. <laughs> economists, good God. All of the economists that we've spoken to said the exact same thing. So I think we're selecting well, those are, for that those type are heterodox, of heterodox nice economists. I think most economists, the standard economists, the famous economists would think that I'm full of shit. Um, but my point is that well, you you've talked to Steve Keen and Michael Hudson. I mean, those they have economics PhDs, but they're not real economists in in that sense. <laughs> Fighting um, words right there. I'm kidding. No, they're, they're meant to be a compliment to those those two in particular. Um, but here's the thing: if Steve Keen and I and a hundred people like us were able to absolutely prove that many of the theorems in neoclassical economics are wrong and ended up they were just a correlation equals causation in a unique exponential growth period of humans and they they got the story right but for the wrong reasons and now the story is wrong if we were able to prove that completely would it change anything and unfortunately i think the answer is no because i think the powerful people in the world um and you know the 2000 elite people in the world that are accessing ai and having billions and moving it around um i don't think it would impact their behaviors right now this system will keep going until it doesn't um and that's what i talk about when i i think we need to meet the future halfway we need cadres of human beings understanding what we face, preparing for a lower consumption, less uh, global economy, and building blueprints and break glass in case of emergency plans and constituency for different economic systems. And Milton Friedman, a lot of his ideas I don't agree with, but he did say that a crisis is um, an opportunity for new ideas that are laying around. And, and I, I think there's a lot of ideas laying around. My big challenge and the reason that I started a podcast is I think a lot of the pro-social um, ideas out there are energy blind. Mm. And for instance, degrowth, um, clearly we should degrow because we're destroying the functioning capacity of our biosphere. Um, and we need to conserve these resources, both our ecosystems and our finite, uh, non-renewable on human timescales resources. But to just voluntarily degrow, um, first of all, it's not going to happen. Uh, second of all, if it were to happen overnight, it would be catastrophic because of the, the inertia and the complexity of our system. But I think where the degrowth movement is right is we need more people thinking about what does a lower consumption, more human connection, um, slower, more local economy look like. And the more people that are practicing that, um, the the more of a buffer there will be when it happens. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. I I think that there is a great difficulty in getting people to change what they're doing until there's a viable alternative. Like, I think that the work of tracing out the problem and showing all of the ways in which things fall apart is the first stage. Mm -hmm. And in order to get it to the level of 
of actually changing something, there has to be a viable alternative. And what you're saying about going through and studying where it works and how it works is probably one of the most powerful ways to be able to change things because then you can dream. At least you can look at something and you can say, it works in the modern day with our modern constraints and might be able to scale. Yeah, um, you're absolutely right. And I, th I think there's uh, scientific evidence showing that when people see an altruistic act, they're 300% more likely to do an altruistic act themselves. Hmm. And one of the challenges with this complicated, threatening, abstract, in the future story of energy and money and ecology and the great simplification is it's kind of in the mind and you're passing information to another mind but then after the discussion is over we go back to netflix and chill and watching college football championship games and and going to the grocery store and getting some expensive uh, local meat and honey and and you know the life of the 24 7 smorgasbord is still with us so we are not forced to make change but those places in the world that have been forced to make a change i did a podcast with a woman uh, Joslyn uh, Faith Kennedy from Lebanon earlier in the year. Um, Lebanon has had a 50% drop in GDP since 2020. Their currency has been uh, destroyed. And she's on the podcast with me cracking jokes. Like there's a dark humor that they have. And she's actually a climate activist. And she's trying to make packaging materials for local people using local materials like potatoes and algae and things like that so i i do think in in the absence of being forced to live differently we can try to imagine what it would be like and we can also try small pilots uh transition towns if you will um and if we can't do that at least what we can do is have build social connections with like-minded people where we live. So in Ashland or Talent or Medford or Grants Pass or Roseburg, you get 10 or 20 people together on a Saturday with a potluck. And um, I was about to say, start talking about these issues, but you don't even need to do that. You just need to build the social capital with these people that you normally wouldn't see. That's even more primary than the facts about oil depletion and climate change and and everything else. We just need to know more people where we live because this energy surplus has allowed us to live like kings and queens of old without ever leaving our house and the little brown trucks come and deliver us stuff. We turn on the TV and have our phones and we have total distraction. Um, That's one thing I noticed about rural people, people, by the way, is is that they're really good at maintaining those local networks. I feel like they are the, they are the people having those potlucks on Saturdays, whereas we're kind of metropolitan you know transplants like we're on the road most of the time and we don't really slot into that these people have been here for like six generations since the oregon trail and stuff so they've well, they've they've actually built a lot of that way of life around all of this you know we talk about poverty which i think is is here now and it's going to be wider and deeper um but when we say poverty what we really mean is material poverty which is the ability to buy food and pay for your utility bills and have basic services. 
but there is community and social poverty, which a lot of wealthy people don't have. A lot of wealthy people don't have any friends or social connections. If you go to sub-Saharan Africa, uh, where there's uh, a high percentage of HIV infections and no running water necessarily, and everyone shares connections to plug in a, a shared cell phone, there is deep connected understanding and relationships with people, even though they're in a very material poverty area. Um, so I think there, there really ought to be it. And, and I'm no expert on this, but there should be a distinction between social and material poverty. Um, and somehow we need to have more social connection as uh, the, the size of the global material pie shrinks. Yeah, it seems like, and and yeah, it opens, it just keeps like pointing back to religion for me. It's like, how do you orient people from a young age towards social wealth, right? Like towards building connections, towards communities, towards values other than growth? Well, like, I mean, I agree with you that the facts of the major religions are kind of delusional. But the messaging really isn't. I mean, well, I don't think they were ever meant to be taken as facts. Is the problem? I actually think it's like some strange perversion that people grip onto these as if they're supposed to be scientific truths or something. Because I don't think that they were ever envisioned that way in, in any sense whatsoever. I think this was the way that people housed wisdom about how to behave so as to actually live in harmony with the universe. Yeah, maybe it's just us elite intellectuals that take them as facts and like to critique them. But my, my broader message is a lot of the, the teachings in the Bible and, and other religions are actually quite pro-social and are what we need in today's society help your neighbor you don't need all that stuff give away your possessions the possessions aren't as important as relationships i mean there is a lot of wisdom in the ancient wisdom traditions and the the great and they're very clear about that being good right they don't they don't shy away from saying and that's good like and taking care of your neighbor is good and right. having taking responsibility for your future and your family is good, right? They're, they're not shying away from those things. And I feel like when I look at the, the wider orientation coming down from, you know, everything from Hollywood to the governments, let's say public schools, whatever, it's not, they're really scared of that concept of good. And I think that that's a really, really scary, dangerous place to find ourselves. And I think that it allows us to just turn all of our responsibility over to some algorithm that's aimed towards growth, let's say, or financial growth without even having to consider, Hey, what is good? Because there's no place to talk about that publicly. Yeah, I agree with you, Shiloh. What I actually think is going to happen is it is who we are to self-organize around a belief system because we get the social benefits of the group. Um, and I think with AI and polarization and social media and all that, I think religions are going to be a huge part of the coming decades. But I don't think it's going to be one. I think it's going to be dozens mm. of different ideas that people self-organize around. And I hope one of them is around the sacredness of the natural world on this blue-green earth that is the only habitable place in the universe that we're aware of to this point, that would be one of them. And I hope that is a big one. But I think religions are kind of who we are as a species. So I expect in times of 
um, upheaval and anxiety and uncertainty, we're going to have more religion, not less. It just may not be Christianity or Judaism or Islam per se. Yeah, I I totally agree. I mean, this is a conversation that as we go, I just have more and more and more things that I want to ask you, but we're almost Well, we're, we're going to have to do point. it in two parts then, because yeah. I, I have a hard stop in 15 minutes from a prior commitment. That's totally to fine. I, that's, what, that's what I'm trying to say. Like, I, I, I think that this is about as much as I can digest at once, and it's been really, it's been really vital to understand the world from this perspective and i appreciate you taking the time to out of your day and out of your life to to come and talk to us yeah and and you mentioned you know you asked at one point if if we were political or whatever and i think the answer to that is only in so much as we're interested in imagining a future that's better than the present and, and by whatever road that looks like and and i think that that coming to that picture, that mental picture of what a better version of all of these things, the state, the economy, uh, the communities, what that looks like is something that, well, this conversation has definitely fueled my imagination for. And I want to think about it a lot more and then maybe maybe talk to you after I've, after I've digested all this and, and see, try on some ideas. So what I meant by that is um, I, I don't like to be I think to to do what you just said, which is to look at the future and make better decisions, eventually we would have to be political to make that happen. But I think our role, the two of you and me in, in our public podcast role, is to normalize these conversations in a non-judgmental, open way. And I've become a little familiar with uh, what's called metamodernism, uh, which is beyond postmodernism, and the ability to take multiple perspectives and in the moment suppress your own ideologies to foster a larger conversation. And I think at this stage, that's really important. Um, and uh, Nastia, thank you for your kind words. I'm happy to be back. This is a huge freaking story, and I don't have the answers, but I think. If you look at the world, if we fly up high enough and look down at the human ecosystem, energy is vital. Our ecology is vital. And who we are as evolved uh, social primates is really a, a, an important part of it. So if you unite all those three things and you can kind of get a sense of how we got here and where we're headed, and it's my hope that a lot more people understand this not only understand it, but care about it and, and start to play a role. So um, thank you both for what you're doing. And again, I'm, I'm happy to come back um, and maybe even have you on my show in the future. It'll be fantastic. And everybody should go check out the Great Simplification podcast. It's fantastic. You have a lot of really incredible guests and just tons and tons of explorations of these ideas. So thank you. Thank you.